On October the 31st, 1517, Martin Luther declared war. On the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses, a, an outlining of all that had gone wrong in Rome, of all of the unfaithfulness within the life of the church and the profound issues that he saw as taking them not just in a bad direction, but in a fatal direction away from the word of God, away from the gospel of Jesus Christ, away from that which God had called them to. Within the Catholic Church, there was a, a triadic view of authority that they believe were co-equal in authority, being the Word of God, the tradition of the church, and the Pope himself. Now, of course, within that, the, the Pope was considered the inerrant, infallible interpreter of the other two. So the Pope was the interpreter of the Word of God, and the Pope was the interpreter of the tradition of the church. And Pope Leo X and many that had come before him had used their power and wielded it in a way to interpret the Bible and to interpret the tradition of the church in a way that corrupted it to their own gain. And so by the time of Luther, they were in the process of bringing to completion St. Peter's Basilica and Rome had run empty on money. And they began to sell indulgences, plenary indulgences that would actually let you be totally righteous before God if you would purchase one of these indulgences and they would use the money to then go and build their grand basilica. It was said by one of the Pope's minions, by Tetzel, he says, not even the raping of the mother of God could outweigh the efficacy of these indulgences. And so you could buy them for yourself, you could buy them for your friend. You could buy them for your dead husband or your dead son. And by purchasing that, you were essentially purchasing their way out of hell or out of purgatory. It was more than Luther and those like him could stand. They would read their Bibles and they would weep and they would sob as they heard and they saw with their own eyes the things that were being done as people were walking up the steps that Jesus had climbed to go and descend, ascend to where Pilate was and being charged and offered forgiveness at the expense of their money. And Luther seeing this in Rome is overcome. And he comes to a crisis of faith. And he realizes that no longer can he be silent. No longer can things go on as they have been. No longer, if this generation was going to be saved, no longer if God was not going to remove his hand entirely from the earth, could these things continue on. And so the question of the Reformation was the question of authority. The question of authority. Did authority rest as the Catholic Church in their day and in fact in our day as well? Did it rest on the triadic authority of the Bible, the Pope, and the tradition? Or was it centered on the Word of God alone? Luther made his decision. Luther made his decision and he essentially signed his own warrant toward, uh, toward suffering and perhaps even execution. Being summoned by a papal bull, he, he said these words when asked to renounce and recant the things that he had so said before. He said, I am not so audacious that for the sake of a single obscure and ambiguous decretal of a human pope, I would recede from so many and such clear testimonies 
of the divine scripture. And so this morning we begin. As we began a series of sermons over the next five weeks uh, in honor of the 500 year anniversary of the Reformation, we begin our series the same place that Martin Luther began. We begin our series with the Word of God. Everything for Luther started and ended there. Everything that Luther taught, everything that Luther stood for, everything that Luther preached, all of it was based and anchored. His entire hope of what he wanted to accomplish for the glory of the Lord lived and died with this book. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. The Reformation is founded upon five solas. It can be summed up in five solas. Now, sola is a Greek word, or not a Greek word, it's a Latin word that means alone. So over the next five weeks, we're going to take one of those each week, and we're going to tell you about some of the heroes of the Reformation, and we're going to unpack one of those solas each week because all of what Luther did has led to who we are today, brothers and sisters. It has led to Iron City Baptist Church. And so we're going to take the very first sola, sola scriptura, that is scripture alone. Would you stand with me as we prepare to read God's word together? We're just going to read two verses this morning. We could read so many. We're going to read 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to begin in verse 16 and we're going to read verse 17 also. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his all-sufficient word this morning. You may be seated. Well, try to drink my water with the lid on. That doesn't work. If you'll notice the language that Paul uses, he opens by saying, he uses in verse 16, and he says, all scripture is breathed out by God. That is, all scripture is exhaled by God. It is the expiation of God sending forth his word, sending forth his revelation. And by using that language, Paul is calling into our minds Genesis chapter 1 verse 2. In Genesis chapter 1 verse 2, it says that the spirit or the breath of God, it's the same exact word depending on how you want to translate it, the breath of God hovered over the waters of the deep. And so the, the, the understanding, the implication of what that means is, is that as God spoke and he said, let there be land, let there be water, let there be light, let there be creatures crawling and birds flying and fish swimming. That as often as God spoke, it went through the word of God and uh, the spirit of God, the breath of God, and it was actualized and brought into being. So in other words, God would speak and the breath of God, so filled with his power, so filled with his might, so filled with his will, went forward and all that is came to be. In fact, if you've been a part of my hermeneutics class on Wednesday nights, you know that what do we call the creation? The creation is known as the general revelation of God. That you can step outside and you can look at Mount Chihar, or you can watch the rain falling, or you can look at the smile of your baby. And as you do and you gaze upon those things, you see something of the majesty and the power and the brilliance and the grandeur of our God. 
As you fly over the mountains or you see the expanse of the Grand Canyon or you stand on the edge of the Mississippi, as you sit and watch the waves roll in, all of those things are proclaiming the handiwork of God, revealing to us in a general way something about our Creator, something about who God is. See, the breath of God is always connected to the self-revelation of God. That as the breath of God goes forward, so does something of who God is being revealed to us. And so, Paul says, is the scripture. Paul says, the scripture is just like the creation. That God spoke and through his breath, all of it was actualized and all of it came to be preaching of his majesty, preaching of his grandeur, preaching of his glory, preaching of his beauty. He said, but this, this is even more precious because that told you about him generally and this tells you about him specifically. This just doesn't tell you that there's a God out there somewhere. This tells you who he is. This tells you who you are. This tells you his story of redemption. This is the one that tells you that God came in the form of a man and died for you. That this the sings of his glory and his grace, his might and his mercy, his kindness and his wisdom in ways that only God himself could have revealed. And so Paul, so Paul is saying, Timothy, as you open up your Bible in the midst of these last days, as you open up your Bible in the midst of godlessness, as you open up your Bible surrounded by people that want you to tickle their to itching ears, remember, you cannot corrupt the words, the God-breathed revelation of himself. So we call this the doctrine of inspiration. We call this the doctrine of inspiration. It's how God came to give us a book. It's how God came to give his people his words so clearly that we could read them and know them and love them and cherish them and enjoy them and delight in them. It's how God would come to specifically reveal himself to us so that we would not just call out to some vague, generic God, but we could call out God by name and cry out to him that he would deliver us and save us and transform us. And there's something about the God-breathedness of Scripture, I think, that informs what we understand inspiration of Scripture to be. You see, I think it would be a mistake to believe that, to think of the apostles or the authors of scriptures as being like divine secretaries. I think that's the view that we have a lot of time, or at least within the church that kind of has a high view of the scripture. We think of, the, we think of Paul as being like this divine secretary, and so God's like got an earpiece in Paul, and he's saying, all right, okay, God, oh, no, backspace, Paul, backspace, Paul. You know, like, you're not dictating that just right. But that's not how the Lord works, is it? No, the, the Lord, the way that he gave us the Bible is the same way that he works through the ordinary means of providence in our lives. How do we know that God works? Most of the time, God doesn't come to you with like a cloud parting moment in a, in a deep voice saying, thou shalt, my boy. Most of the time, God works in your life through the ordinary means and then he superintends the process, right? Right? 
He, he, he allows certain circumstances to happen in your life. He allows you to meet certain people. He allows you to come into contact with, with certain things and read certain books and cross certain scriptures and, and sing certain songs at certain times so that in your heart and in your life, the decisions are made that can kind of get you to where God would have you to be within his will. We call that providence, the ordinary means of providence. And what we should understand is that God so worked in the lives of these men and he so filled them with his breath and with his Holy Spirit that scripture essentially has a dual authorship. One by the man and one by God all at the same time that the Lord is working through the men that are writing down the scriptures so that he is working in their personalities and he is working in their languages and he is working in their circumstances and he's working in their context. So when you read the books written by Peter, it sounds like Peter. And when you read the books written by Paul, it sounds like Paul. You read the books written by David and Moses, and they're going to sound like David and Moses. They're going to have the grammar of the day. If they were a fisherman, maybe the grammar's not so sharp. If they were a scholar like Paul, probably going to be pristine, right? But isn't that how God always works, church? Isn't that how God always works? Sometimes God takes little country boys from rabbit town and he uses them to preach his word. Sometimes he takes brilliant scholars like Tim Keller and he takes him to, to Redeemer Church in North Carolina and he uses him, or in New York, and uses him to preach his word. But the Lord works through a variety of instruments in a variety of ways, superintending the whole process the whole time to ensure that what we have in our hands is not simply the words of Peter, not simply the words of Paul, but in fact, the God-breathed, inerrant scriptures that have been channeled through them and given to us by his grace. I think a, a good way to think of it is that just as God condescended to come in the form of a man, so does God condescend to speak to us in the language of a man. That God speaks to us in all of his glory, in all of his might, and in all of his grandeur in a way that we are actually able to comprehend, in a way that we are actually able to know. Church, do you realize what a gift your Bible is? Do you realize what a gift your Bible is? Have you stopped to think lately that in your Bible is not simply a bunch of words? In your Bible is not simply a, a collection of fairy tales. In your Bible is not simply a bunch of wisdom literature. In your Bible contains the God-breathed scriptures. In your Bible is a revelation of God by his grace to you that you can get to him and love him and rest in him and be rescued by him. That this is not a lecture we're talking about, church. Don't come in on Sundays expecting a lecture. Come in on Sundays ready to hear from the word of God. Wake up in the morning, not begrudgingly, not, not well, let me get my scripture reading in, not, not let me dial up an, an appetizer type devotional, but let me open up the word of God and read it and delight in it and love it. Church, this may just be outside of the cross of Jesus Christ, the greatest gift of grace that God has given to you. You can actually know who he is. You can actually learn about him. You can actually hear God speak. 
Every syllable, every phrase, every thought found in these pages is filled with the very breath of God himself. Church, are you in awe of your Bible? Are you in awe of your Bible? Or does it collect dust day in and day out? Are you in awe of your Bible? Or do the pages of your Bible look just as new five years after you've bought it? Are you in awe of your Bible? Are you just check off reading it from a list? You just check off hearing it preached from your day, your weekly task. Are you in awe of your Bible? Or is your Bible just some ordinary thing? Church, this is the breath of God. This is the revelation of God. This is the glory and the grace and the might of God. And it's in your hands. God has given you his word. Revel in the glory of your Bible. You know, some have accused us as being idolaters. People who worship a book. And I tell you, church, that's not the truth. I do not worship my Bible. But were it not for my Bible, I don't know who else I would worship. It is the Bible that tells me who I worship. And it is the Bible that tells me how I worship. And it is the Bible that tells me that I, a sinner, guilty, condemned, am now set free and liberated to worship God in a way that doesn't invite his condemnation on me. No, we don't worship the Bible, but without the Bible, there is no worship. Glory in your Bible, church. So for the Reformation, everything flowed out of the inspiration of Scripture. It started there. It started on the God-breathedness of Scripture. If, if, God, if, if God's Word is not God-breathed, then nothing that took place in the Reformation is true. Nothing that took place in the Reformation makes any sense. And so what I want us to see from the text this morning and, and kind of connecting it back is I want us to see kind of three implications of God's Word being His inspired Word. Three implications of it actually containing the breath of God and having been breathed out in self-revelation of himself. The first one is this. Because God's word is inspired, it is inerrant. Because God's word is inspired, it is inerrant. That the inerrancy of God's word is derivative of God's holy character. That because God is good and because God is holy, and because God is righteous, because he has breathed it out, by the very breathing it out, he has breathed into his word, or breathed out his word in a way that it contains his very character. He has breathed out his word in a way in which it reveals his righteousness, and at the same time contains the virtue of his righteousness. When asked about the inerrancy of scripture, Martin Luther said this, because we know that God does not lie. My neighbors and I, in short, all men may err and deceive, but God's word can not err. In other words, here's what Luther was saying. Why don't I trust popes? Because popes can lie. Why don't I trust popes? Because popes disagree with one another. Why is it that I don't fully trust in tradition, though tradition can be good and doctrine is good? Because sometimes church councils disagree with one another. Sometimes men have agendas. 
Sometimes men have agendas that they're wanting to advance, even at the expense of God, even by placing words into the mouth of God. So why is it that I believe that this is different? Because God breathed it out. Because this does not change. Because this is steady and faithful. Because this contains the character of God, and I know that the character of God is of holiness. I want you to circle in your Bibles the word all there. The word all. Mine says all scripture is breathed out by God. I think virtually every translation that I read this week translated it the same way. All scripture is breathed out by God. Now when we hear all scripture, and I think this is a good thing for us to think about, we're thinking about this from a comprehensive standpoint. In other words, we're thinking about the whole book, the entirety of the book from cover to cover. And we should think of it like that because all of it cover to cover is in fact breathed out by God. But this word can actually be translated just as fairly, just as truly as being every scripture. In other words, it's a different picture than the picture of all. It's the picture of every minute syllable of scripture, every portion of scripture, every word of scripture. And I think that's important because it, it speaks to an argument of our day. See, Starting with the Enlightenment, people began to say, you know what, rationally, rationally informed people, logically informed people can't read about the Red Sea and believe that, that that's real. That, that rationally informed people can't believe that there was actually a man, if they're going to maintain their enlightened state, they can't main, believe that there's a man that somehow was born to a virgin, walked on water, fed thousands with a sack lunch, like we know as rational people, that's not what was happening. It just kind of got lost in communication here. And so what, here's what they will say. They will say that the Bible is infallible, in faith and practice. That is, the Bible is infallible in, in the things in which it speaks to redemption. It's infallible in teaching us how to live a moral life. It's infallible in teaching us uh, the teachings of Jesus and the things that we should do in honor of that and in the practice of those things. It's, it's honorable or it's, it's infallible when teaching us how to pray. Uh, it's infallible when it teaches us about the Lord's Supper or about baptism. But it's not inerrant. It's not without error in historical facts. It's not without error in scientific facts. We can show these things, that, that parting the Red Sea is scientifically impossible. And so the Bible is not inerrant historically, and it is not inerrant within the small details of the Scripture. It is only infallible as speaking to issues of faith and practice. And the issue with that is that's not what the Bible says. That's not what the Bible says of itself. The Bible says of itself that it is inerrant in every small detail, down to the smallest number and down to the greatest minutia within the scriptures. That it is in fact infallible in faith and practice, but it is as simultaneously inerrant in all that it says, in every syllable, in every detail that could be found in the original autographs. That every single word, every single portion, every single enunciation was all filled with the very breath of God himself. See, when people like that read the Bible, they read the Bible and they say, this Bible is oppressive to women. 
They read the Bible and they, they think of the stories in Joshua or they think of, the, of, of Abraham tying his son down to the altar and they say that it is immorally violent. They read about the miracles and they say that it is, it is rationally misguided. But brothers and sisters, I tell you that if we have to redeem the book, if we have to go through and search out all the places where it's immoral and misguided, if we have to go and search out all the ways that it was culturally tainted, then if we have to redeem the book, then the message of the book has no power to redeem us. For we cannot be redeemed by an errant message. We cannot be redeemed by an errant gospel. And the Bible claims of itself that it contains the breath of God, the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, so much so that the reformers and the apostles and the fathers believed that the holy scriptures were derivative of the holy character of God himself. Now, Thomas Franklin, I mean not Thomas Franklin, Thomas Jefferson did not believe that. Famously, Thomas Jefferson had a Bible that he would keep and he would have a pair of scissors. And he liked the Bible, he liked to read the Bible, and he claimed that the Bible was, was a very good book and had a lot of very good things to offer, but that the Bible was just a little bit behind the times. Jefferson considered himself very much to be an enlightened man. And so what he would do is he would go through the Gospels, and he would cut out any of the miracles of Jesus that he believed to be scientifically, logically impossible. So he would cut out the virgin birth and he would leave the rest of the page. And he would cut out the, the, word, the, the feeding of the thousands with the loaves and the fish. He would cut out Jesus walking on the water. He would cut those things out and then he would come up with a rational explanation as to what those things were really speaking to. See, Jefferson treated the Bible like the Bible was a good, old, a good old house with good bones, but in need of some renovation. He treated the Bible like, like the Bible was, was one of those houses that you go in and you think, man, that's a, that's a sturdy old house and it really could be a lot really pretty and I see a lot of potential in it. So let me go in and let me bring it up to code. Let me bring it into modernity. So Jefferson looked at his Bible and he says, you know, this is a good old book. It has a lot of good things it can teach us. We just need to bring it up to code. We need to usher it into modernity. But you know what? Jesus had an entirely different view of the Bible than Thomas Jefferson did. Jesus had an entirely different view of the Bible than Thomas Jefferson did. And Jefferson may, be, may have been enlightened, and he may have been educated, and he may have read books and books and books. But I'll take the views of Jesus Christ over the enlightened Jefferson any day. Amen. Because the truth of the matter is, is that whatever doctrine we speak of, whether it be on scripture or salvation, whether it be sin and repentance, whatever, whatever doctrine we begin to, to study, if we find ourselves having an opposing view to Jesus Christ, then the view that we hold is an unchristian view by its very definition. We rise and we fall with Jesus Christ. So would you take your bulletin out? And I want you to see there's an insert in your bulletin. There's so much that I want to say about the inerrancy of Scripture, but I only, I'm only going to make one point this morning to that end. The point that I want to make this morning is that you should trust your Bible as much as Jesus does. 
You should trust your Bible as much as Jesus does. And the glorious thing about Jesus is that we know where he stands on the Bible. Jesus was not ambiguous. Jesus was not unclear. Jesus was not evasive. Jesus was not in any way difficult to pin down on his view of the Bible. You'll look in your, the sheet that I have, and all of those are direct ways in which Jesus has spoken to the Old Testament stories. You can go through and you can realize that Jesus even affirmed his own teachings as scripture. He, even looking forward, told the, the apostles that the Spirit of God was going to bring to their remembrance the ability to write down the holy scriptures, affirming in advance the work of the apostles to that end. And if we find ourselves with a view different than the Lord Jesus, then what I want us to see is that we find ourselves in a gospel crisis. In a gospel crisis. I want you to go and look up every one of those references. But I wrote it out in summary like this. Jesus believed Genesis when it said that Adam and Eve were the first humans created by the hand of God, not some evolutionary mutation. He believed that Noah and every creature God desired boarded an ark that saved the remnant from God's wrath and rain. He believed that Lot's wife really did turn into a pillar of salt and that God really did speak face to face with Moses on Sinai. Jesus believed that Moses' bronze snake could heal a man and he believed that Jonah was swallowed by a great fish and then spit upon the bank to go and preach to Nineveh. He believed every dot and every tittle. He filled every page and every prophecy. He held fast to every promise and every hope. He obeyed every command and every law. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ believed in his Bible. Do you? See, here's the issue. If we have an errant savior, we don't have a savior at all. If Jesus is errant... If Jesus is flawed, if Jesus is misguided, if Jesus is misunderstood, then he is something less than God. And if Jesus is something less than God, then Jesus is not capable of bearing the weight of the world's sin. If Jesus is something less than God, then he is not capable of overcoming death and sin and the grave. If Jesus is something less than God, then he may have some cool teachings, he may have done some neat things, but he has no power to deliver you and I from sin. And Jesus so closely associated himself with the Bible, Jesus so closely associated himself with the Word of God that the Apostle John actually calls him the Word of God. And if he, the Word of God is in error, then Jesus necessarily and by his own association is himself in grave error. If we lose the Bible, we lose the gospel. If we lose the Bible, we lose the gospel. If we lose the authority of the Bible and the sufficiency of the Bible and the inerrancy of the Bible and the inspiration of the Bible, then brothers and sisters, we've got no reason to meet. We've got no reason to come together. This is what we have. This is what we have. Passed down to us by faithful Christians over thousands of years, many of whom gave up their lives so that you and I can have it. So because God's word is inspired, it is inerrant. The next implication that I want us to see is because God's word is inspired, it is authoritative. Because God's word is, a, is inspired, it is authoritative. 
because this was Luther's message to the Pope. This was Luther's message to the Pope. Popes disagree, councils disagree, humans disagree. The best man that I know is a liar sometimes. So how, how is it that God would center all of his authority on you? How is it that God would, would center all of his authority on that which is fundamentally, elementary, elementally flawed? How is it that, that God would, would put himself in the hands of men that are filled with corruption and filled with the, sin, the disease of sin? He wouldn't. No, as a demonstration of his sovereignty, as a demonstration of his reign, as a demonstration of his rule, God gave us a book filled with authority. God gave us a book that we can trust on and rely upon. And it's authoritative because it originated in the grand authority, right? But the Bible is authoritative because it comes from the source of all authority. You know what? As a church, all of us are operating on a borrowed authority. All of us are, are, are operating on a borrowed authority. It's important to realize that Luther was never at any point trying to undermine the authority of the church. He was never trying to, to undermine that, that there was value in a, in a tradition handed down to us from previous generations theologically and doctrinally. What he was trying to say, though, is that those things were not the authority ultimately. That those things all lived in submission to the word of God. That all of those things must be submitted to and, and evaluated by Holy Scripture. And if they could hold, stand the test of Holy Scripture, then we could, should use them to guide our church. And we should use them by which to live our lives. We should use them and apply them to our lives. And so it is with us. Do you know why I preach the way that I do? The reason that we, and this series is a bit unusual, the reason that we typically go line by line and go from one book to the next book is because I don't want to have, I don't want to get on my hobby horses up here. And, and, and I can't really go to, the, to you guys and say, hey, uh, what, what do you think would be a good thing for me to preach on? Because what's the problem with all of those things? What right do I have? What right do you have? We don't set God's agenda for him. We don't establish God's word for him. God has told us who he is. God has revealed to us what he wants us to do. God has told us what he wants us to say to one another. And it is all of the God-breathed scripture, all of which are profitable for us. So the best thing that I know to do, to keep from showing favoritism, to keep from showing bias, to keep from advancing my own agenda is to open to Matthew chapter 1 and just start there. To open to the first chapter of a book and just say, hey, as God says it, we're going to say it. As God wants us to hear it, we're going to hear it. As God in his providence has brought a particular word to us on a particular time, we're going to open that up and we're going to deliver it to you as, as faithfully and as passionately as we know how to do. And we know that within Scripture, there are things that he wants us to celebrate. And there are things that we should acknowledge and we should address. And I think you can do those from time to time in a topical way like we're doing in this series. 
But the reason that we do that is because we believe we must start with the Bible because any authority that I have to preach to you, any authority that I have to call you to repentance, any authority that I have to call you to faithfulness, it ends with the Word of God. I can only call you to do what the Word of God empowers me to call you to do. The authority that I have to preach is a borrowed authority. Iron City Baptist Church has authority in the life of her membership. She has authority to, to call you towards certain things. She has authority to ask you to do certain things. She has authority to, to expect your faithfulness. She has authority to come into your life and to call you to repentance and to faithfulness in all those areas. But the authority that Iron City Baptist Church has in the life of her membership begins and ends with a borrowed authority from the Bible. We can only exercise our authority so far as the Bible allows it. And so he says that it is profitable for teaching. That is, it is authoritative on issues of theology and doctrine. He says that it is useful and profitable for reproof, meaning that the Bible is what calls us to repentance. He says that it is useful for correction, meaning that the Bible is what calls us toward faithfulness and calls us toward gospel passion. He says it is useful for training in righteousness, meaning that it's the word of God that the Lord uses to form us into the image of Christ. It's the word of God that the Lord uses to form and to fashion us so that we bring glory to Christ. See, the error of Luther's day was that there was a Pope that believed he was a co-equal with Scripture. But you know what? I think it's different in our day. In our day, we don't so much worry with a Pope that's a co-equal to Scripture as we believe that each one of us individually are above Scripture in judgment of Scripture. Today, the issue in the Baptist church and the issue in our church and the issue in our community is not that we are listening to one teacher corrupt the Word of God, but it is in fact that we believe that there are thousands, even millions of Pope who get to bring their personal opinions and their personal thoughts and judge Scripture according to their reason and according to their logic and according to their worldview. But brothers and sisters, anything that we believe apart from the Bible is apart from God. Anything that we believe that does not originate in the Lord and originates in us is heresy. When you come to the Bible, do you come to the Bible seeking to prove your theology or to seeking to have your theology aligned with Christ? Does your book rule you or do you rule over your book? Does the Bible speak to you and humble you and call you to repentance? Or do you go to your book and say, no, that can't be. It can't say that. It can't mean that. Too often, Christians seeking to be faithful, wanting to be faithful, open up their Bibles and they maneuver it and massage it and sanitize it and domesticate it until it means something entirely different than what it actually says. Let the Bible be your starting place, church. The final implication that I want us to look at this morning is that because God's word is inspired, it is sufficient. Because God's word is inspired, it is sufficient. So the inerrancy of God's word is derivative of God's character and the authority of God's word is a demonstration of his sovereignty. And now we see that the sufficiency of God's word is a display of his power. In verse 17, 
It speaks, let's, let's read verse 17 together. It says that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Did you know that scripture in the hands of the Holy Spirit is sufficient to transform you into exactly who God needs you to be? Scripture in the hands of the Holy Spirit is sufficient to transform you into exactly the man or the woman that God would have you to be and to equip you to do exactly what it is that God would have you to be. That scripture is like dynamite in the hands of the miner who knows exactly where to place it, exactly how deep to drill, exactly where in the mountain it should go so that he can light the wick and blow it up to reveal the brilliance of the diamonds. That scripture in the hands of the Holy Spirit is the dynamite that God places into your heart to blow away all of the worldliness, to blow away all of the deception, to blow away all of the selfishness, to blow away all of those things so that the brilliance of the image of God placed in you according to the dignity that God has given to every single human being may shine and glory in all of its brilliance. It did that with Luther. Luther, as Aaron so eloquently pointed out, was a guilt-ridden monk. Every biography that you read will point out that he would often spend five hours every single day in confession. Confessing his smallest sins, confessing his, his most tiny inkling of unfaithfulness. Believing all of it was damning him before God himself. And so he would agonize in misery until he opened up Romans and Galatians and Hebrews. And he realized, the gospel does not bind me. The gospel does not call me to guilt. The gospel does not leave me in bondage and misery and despair. The gospel sets me free. And so the word of God by the Spirit of God, placed in the man of God, blows away the guilt-ridden monk and rises from the ashes, the lion of the Reformation. You know what it did in me? For me, it, it took a legalistic, cultural Christian that was a babbling fool and used him to be in pastoring his home church. I've seen the Word of God in the hands of, spirit, of the Spirit of God take drug-addicted, convicted felons and turn them into the elders of their church. I've seen it take adulterer, play, adulterous playboys and use them to, to begin investing in the next generation of young men. I've seen it take shy junior high girls and use them to take the gospel and call to salvation young men that would be preachers of the gospel, missionaries, go into the nations. Brothers and sisters, the Word of God is sufficient to make you whatever God would have you be. The Word of God, in the hands of the Spirit of God, knows no limits. Not limited by your weakness, not limited by your sin, not limited by your struggles, not limited by your inadequacy, not limited by your insecurity. The Word of God, in the hands of the Spirit of God, is capable of transforming you in a way that changes every generation that comes after you. So when you read of Scripture's effect and you read of the sufficiency of Scripture, is there any wonder why the enemy wants us to spend all of our time staring at televisions and Facebook? Is there any wonder why he wants to convince us 
to spend another 30 minutes in bed rather than opening up this explosive power? Is there any wonder why he wants to convince us that we will be happier if we will indulge ourselves in another episode of Parks and Rec rather than opening up the explosive word of God breathed out by him to transform us by the spirit of God? Do you understand? The Bible is the devil's kryptonite. The Bible is the devil's kryptonite. How did Jesus slay the devil in the wilderness? The word of God. What will happen on the final day of judgment when the devil is cast into the lake of fire? The word of God will go forth and it will send him there. Brothers and sisters, turn loose this book in your life. Turn loose this book into your life. Delight in the Bible, church. Delight in the Bible, church, that you may be a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Let's pray together.